Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends... Our conversation begins. Salvador is over. We gotta get close to the truth. We get too close, we die. Listen, you know, I think it's gonna blow on El Salvador real soon. I thought if you guys could get me a new press card and two grand, I could get you some really good stuff. What do you say? Look, this is serious, okay? I, I need one for old time's sake. You gotta give me 500 bucks to go to El Salvador. They kill people here, boy. You believe everything you read in the papers? Yeah, Come on, man, you're gonna love it here. Getting out of here, Boyle. Look, Doc, this is my last chance. If I can get some good combat shots for AP, you know, I can make some money. Whatever you do, okay? <laughs> Don't get on the ground. They're not just shooting the Indians. They're shooting at us. Chaos has descended on tiny El Salvador in Central America. They rearranged this kid's molecules and they took their time about it. Richard. He is dying out there right now while we're talking. Okay, cool, man. Look at you. Okay? Oh, no, no. So any information or photos you can throw my way. Pretty <laughs> fantastic. I mean, they could come tonight, they could take her away, and they could kill her too. Richard, Richard. That doesn't have anything to do with us. Marry me. That you are the head of the death squads terrorizing the countryside of the city. A pathological killer on the right, God knows what on the left, and a gutless middle. Ma'am, these are not combat troops. 
the ambassador, you know, United States. You gotta get close, Rick, to get the truth. You get too close, you die. <laughs> You're gonna be in big heaven, man. Andy, I started a new list on Letterboxd. I've, you know, I've started several new lists on Letterboxd. And I know Good you're a fan you. of the list. Yeah. This one this. is our Friday night movie list. I decided nice. that I want to start cataloging all the movies that my family, because we can do this round robin, we go around and we each pick a movie every Friday night. And I'm now cataloging those movies. And I maybe regrettably made it a public list. <laughs> now, the question is, are you going back and are you like I trying tried. to remember all of the ones that you've talked about before? I tried That's... and I logged them so inconsistently that I wasn't able to build the robust catalog of Friday night movie lists, uh, movies for my family that I wanted to. And it's I'm I'm not happy about that. I wish so much that I had been more I had been up to your level of documenting uh, my my list making but i'm there now i'm very excited about it and i know you want to talk a little bit about lists today i love lists i think it's a lot of fun to look at other lists i mean that's what's fun about letterboxd is you can have some incredibly serious lists you know like i was looking at lists about dictatorships in central and south america they have some interesting list people have put together about dictatorships in Argentina, about Brazilian military dictatorships in the movies, uh, just about uh, Latin American oppression and dictatorships in Latin America through a period of time. But you can also get some really silly lists or just really creative lists, you know, where lists, um, people put them together based on like posters where uh, it's a it's a color palette of all the different posters and they all kind of fit when you look at it in a, just the view of all the of all the movie posters like all the faces or you know how similarly designed things end up or or titles that are similar and fun to read when they're all next to each other like people come up with just such silly ideas for lists and creative ideas i just i have so much fun looking at lists and reading through them and in context of things like what we're talking about today uh, you know looking at more serious lists like about dictatorships and just looking at what people have explored with these uh, different parts of history and how they have uh, explored them through film. I, uh, I have to say, I'm looking at some of my favorite lists here that are just, speaking of creative, how about a, fem- a film where a female character's life is intermingled with an ongoing piece of fiction? Mm, see? Can you, can you name one movie that might be on that list right now, just as a little quiz? The ongoing piece of fiction? There are, there are currently six movies on that list. One of them is Black Swan. How about Nocturnal Animals? How about Perfect Blue? How about Pan's Labyrinth or Sucker Punch or Candyman? I don't know if you want to uh, take uh, uh, umbrage with that list, with any of the films on that list, but I think it's really great that they're there. I love lists. The only thing I regret more than that is that a list of people, films in which people punching animals did not exist before we had to approach that topic on the Saturday matinee. It should exist now. Letterbox.com. Uh, you visit Letterbox.com. You can get your uh, own account if you want to join in all the list-making fun. But if you go to the nextreel.com slash Letterboxd, that's L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D, you'll be able to sign up for a 20% discount. And uh, that will give you an opportunity to join the fun with a pro or a, a patron membership at that discount, even if you are renewing. 
So new or renewing accounts can jump in, support Letterboxd, and support The Next Reel at the same time. Join the fun. TheNextReel.com slash Letterboxd. So, Andy, El Salvador. Mm. The movie Salvador, Rough Straits. I don't know if, if James Woods was the best guy to send. Can I just, I, I want to just set this up because, <laughs> okay. you know, El, yeah. El Salvador, uh, Central America, you know, there were a lot of things going on in a lot of countries in Central and South America in this period of time. Uh, not to say any of it's over or it was only this period of time, but in this particular period of time, Salvador, El Salvador was going through a civil war. Uh, there was a, a government that was led by the military. And there were a number of different left-wing groups that were kind of collectively under what was called the FMN, FMLN, the Farabundo Marti National Liberation Front. It, and unfortunately, and this is what so often happened with a lot of these, the U.S. was, you know, afraid of communism. You know, this was definitely a period of time where you know, Cuba had been, quote, lost to the communists, as had Nicaragua. And El Salvador was, you know, there was this huge disparity in income. Coffee was a big uh, cash crop from the country. I think it had like 95% of the country's income coming in from coffee. Uh, but that was going to about 2% of the population. And the land was owned by an even smaller percent of the population. And so it was very much a case of, you know, what we now these days kind of call just the 1%. And, you know, it's it's like very much a, a difference between the uh, the rich and the poor in that particular country. And so the poor had been drawn to or they were looking for ways to try finding uh, reform and and communism had risen up. But not so in the way of like, you know, Soviet Union and stuff like that. It was just people trying to find ways to at least get themselves taken care of. But because the U.S. was so afraid of communism, you know, we do things like support the military dictatorships that are running the country. And uh, Jimmy Carter uh, started it. He was trying to promote stability in the country. But then when Reagan took over, and this film deals with that period when Reagan takes uh, office, the spending increased dramatically. And the U.S., um, through his first term, spent nearly a billion dollars of aid for the, the Salvadoran government. In this period of time, the uh, you know human rights groups had said that I can't remember the I can't find the statistic right now, but of all the different um, the violent acts that had been occurring in this period of time, the vast majority of them were from these U.S. government-trained death squads and from the military government actually attacking peaceful demonstrations, things like that. A very small percent of the violence caused in El Salvador at this time was actually from the guerrillas who were underfunded. They didn't have the weapons that the, you know, the, the government did. And so it was a very dangerous country that unfortunately the U.S. was behind and uh, as far as its military dictatorship. And so I think that it's just an important thing to kind of, you know, have as a backdrop for our conversation, because I think Oliver Stone, you know, we're talking about kind of the evolution of Oliver Stone and his films over the 80s. And I think 
uh, his political views, his left leftist views. Uh, this is his really the first time that he gets as a director, writer, director to kind of put his leftist thoughts on screen and and really kind of uh, to the forefront. And you can really see that he actually says of, you know, there's a scene in the country club partway through the film when uh, a Boyle played by James Woods as the photojournalist, he's talking to the the U.S. military leader who's kind of working with the El Salvadoran government and one of the other U.S. cronies there. And um, I, I guess they wanted to cut it out, but Stone really wanted to keep it. He said, because it was wording on the nose, there was resistance to it. But I fought for the scene in its entirety because I thought it would probably be my last shot at saying what I believed about our government, Vietnam, and Central America. It would be my gravestone speech that would forever distinguish me from the scripts I'd written in the past, but whose uh, contours, as directed by others, concealed murky liberal sentiments at their core. If this was my last film, which I was now expecting it to be, I did not want it to be once again misunderstood. So I think that's, you know, in context of what we're doing with this series, I think that's a good starting place. I think it really is, too. And and I think he learned some interesting lessons over the course of the films that he'd already made. And, and I, I think in terms of not just this film, but in how he thinks about films, um, he, he had some some fascinating things to say about that, that, you know, about coming to learn what American audiences would understand in his movies. He, he says, when we screened the film for American audiences, it just didn't work the same way. He's talking of the madness that goes on in, in uh, this part of the world. Um, and he says, because as it was then perceived, perhaps less so now, audiences were dependent on categorizations. If a film was sold to them as a comedy, they laughed, an adventure, they gasped, a drama, they cried. Salvador, like the hand, was neither fish nor fowl and would be put through this laborious testing process where I found that if something is new or unexpected, it would generally register on the audience's judgment scale as upsetting, chaotic, disturbing, etc. Neither good nor bad, just new and not to be trusted yet. I thought that was something I thought that something new could break through. What I think is interesting and I think is is worth sort of planting that stake here, because I think with Salvador, you get so much more Oliver Stoniness than the the prior movies like we're we're trying to kind of nuance out. Are we going to call it stoniness? The, the themes that what do you got you got something better spielbergian kubrickian yeah. stoniness stoniness okay. yeah all right no okay. he's stoned <laughs> <laughs> i think that might be a better one yeah so uh but but you know over the last several films we're trying to like sort of sort of suss out what is in these films uh the oliver stone stuff it's here it's all in in salvador right there this is he is uh making a stand as an activist filmmaker with this movie and he's putting uh through the the character the real life character of um of richard boyle uh in the hands of james woods and he's he's putting him in this these situations to demonstrate the the pain the lies the frustration the uh economic disparity and inequality um that that is going on in this part of the world and the american role in it and and I think that's really important um, that that the lies he's trying to sort of document for posterity, the lies that were going on in the eyes of the people who were on the ground and actually 
you know, delivering it. The, the whole scene where he's meeting with the, the uh, military folks and he's saying, look, I have photos of the military command there. They don't have the technology and the munitions that you think they do, that you're telling the American people that they do, that you're moving through the military that they do. They have like rifles and sticks. And uh, and you're making this a massive military incursion. And that is a uh, that is a lesson that we learn over and over and over again, you know, just because of complication. Right? It's hard. But this is Oliver Stone, you know, putting that stake in the ground here. I I think it's interesting that it takes so it it starts here and takes a while for um, for us to acclimate to and and expect what Oliver Stone is bringing to the table. And I think probably this, I, I really appreciate this assertion on his, in his own words, uh, because I think it's a lesson that he likely continues to learn un, until people really, really get to know him as a filmmaker. It also came at an interesting period in the 80s. Well, just kind of in that, in because of the political elements happening at the time, I, I feel like Hollywood and and studio filmmakers were wanting to tell some stories but weren't sure how except when it was through the eyes of a an American. Like I yeah. feel like there were a number of them and I I'm sure there I, I the only ones I can think of with uh, Central or South America were Under Fire which was uh, another, you know, I think interesting film. I would, you know, venture to say better but that's just my memory i'm not exactly sure but that one is uh, i think in nicaragua with um nick nolte and, nick nolte and, Hackman yeah. and uh, joanna cassidy and uh, you know about photojournalists who end up kind of getting involved in the the politics and everything but then there was also uh you know your man uh, jan michael vincent he did a film um around this time also called called last plane out um, there were, you know, other films dealing with this sort of stuff, this kind of political intrigue. I think it's generally a way for Hollywood to kind of tackle these stories, not by telling the story of the people involved, but by telling it through the eyes of an American who happens to be there. And, you know, I feel like it still kind of goes on. And I think it's not really the same as what you would call like the white savior characters that you see yeah. in like uh, you know the dances with wolves type of movies but it's definitely you know let's let's tell the story through eyes that we can more easily identify with i mean it it sounds kind of like a very old school way of telling these types of stories but it seemed like the only way to tell these types of stories at the time unless you were looking at a film from the country or something i wonder is it is it that old school though i mean i wonder if just i i don't i don't know that it really is a is anything that's changed all that all that much? I mean, when we're looking at at movies like this, the perspective is from uh, well, uh, okay, maybe it goes back even further than that. As I start talking, right? Like how I, I think if it's if it is a, a big budget American production, it's going to be through the eyes of of an American or English speaking character. I found myself a number of times wanting to to follow somebody who was on the ground there and not James Woods. <laughs> I just I was done following him very early in the movie. I actually I would have followed the Doc Rock story more like the Jim Belushi narrative, um, you know, more easily, I think, uh, than than the James Woods character. Um, but I, I don't think that that's necessarily a lesson that we've learned. I think we're still putting 
the the eyes of a, of that protagonist and central to these stories. And I mean, is there something to that? I mean, is there is there a way to tell these stories that shifts the perspective when it comes from an outsider looking at it as opposed to somebody who's on the ground inside? I mean, is that because that's also a thing? And I do think that there can be value to yeah. seeing a story told from an outsider's perspective. I absolutely do, uh, because, um, you know, we have to have con- conflict in perspectives to find understanding, right? If we all just agree in, in the movies, if we have somebody who's who's local, who sees everything as not foreign, then we don't get the experience of integrating over the course of two hours. We don't get the experience of learning, of educating uh, for the audience. And I think there's real value to that um, uh, in stories like this, right, where you're trying to uncover radical political disparity, right? Just a massive gap between uh, between perspectives, so much so that there is they're in a war over it. Um, and, and so I think that's important. I think we need a character like James Woods to go be in the middle and allow him uh, allow that sort of audience surrogate to uh, to lead us through the complexities of that story. I just I as I was watching this, you know, I, I couldn't help but agree with you. Like, why are we following this character? I hate Richard Boyle. I hate everything about him. I, you know, his perspective, like just his, his lifestyle, everything about it. Just like, this is not a guy I want to be with. I don't want to be following him. Why aren't we following John Cassidy? As John a Cassidy. I, I found yes. him so much more interesting. He's based on the real, real life uh, photojournalist and uh, war correspondent, John Hoagland, who worked for Newsweek. Why not follow him? Why not follow Kathy? Uh, you know, I found her to be a really interesting character. Is it only because they died and, and it was harder to get life rights? Is it because Stone had uh, come into contact with Richard Boyle and because of their Vietnam connection just likely might have seemed like the guy to follow? I'm not sure, but I just really was like, this is the guy I have to follow for two hours? It was yeah. so disappointing. Well, it it made the narrative arc of the film hard uh, because it's really one note, right? Like, from the moment we meet him, it's 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 a, a one-note approach until the end of the movie, which I think the, the third act ends up getting better for me. It, 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 it improves my experience with James Woods. It introduces some differences in the in the tone and texture of, of the character. And so I'm okay with it. But to your point, man, I would have loved the Cassidy follow. I think that would have been a, a, a much more sort of interesting and likable character talking about the story. And I think it would have made the final sequence that much better, right? When our protagonist, our protagonist dies at the end is so much, uh, for me, uh, a more powerful experience for the sake of the film than the deportation sequence. Now, that is perhaps the most critical piece of the argument not to make it John Cassidy, because this isn't necessarily a photojournalist story. This is a story of, like, let's not throw stones in glass houses. We had and continue to have an immigration challenge in this country. And so to tell that story of him getting this woman that he loves and the kids out uh, and managing to go through that whole piece and then get arrested and have her taken off by INS is another really important part of the narrative I think Stone was trying to tell. Yeah, it was an, it was an odd twist to the Coda. end of the film. Yeah. 
Yeah, because and I, I because of the fact that it ends at that particular point, I had to say to myself, well, okay, it's very intentional for Oliver Stone to end it at this particular point, yes. as opposed to a few minutes earlier when they get out or at a different particular point. Like it, it just felt very intentional to say, okay, we're going to get them to a safe place here in the U.S., only to have uh, them stopped at an immigration checkpoint. And she gets deported and he gets arrested. Uh, it just felt like uh, Stone using this as another opportunity to bring his uh, opinions about American politics uh, to light. And it was it was actually quite interesting. I enjoyed seeing him take it to that ending point. But at the same time, I couldn't help but say, I don't know, I guess I just had such issues with the character that I'm like, yeah, of course he's going to go down this road. And, and you know, for me, the, the most frustrating part of the whole thing was seeing Maria and her kids get taken. And like mm-hmm. that was an, actually an interesting note at the end that he added saying, you know, they didn't they did end up uh, in Guatemala, uh, not in El Salvador and safe. They you know weren't necessarily killed. They they were safe, but but there was that was not a convincing coda, right? At the end, it does say, okay, they are reported to be in a camp in Guatemala, yeah. and Richard Boyle is still looking for them. He has right. not found them, and and I think that has to be. We got to add that because that's to me why Stone went this route, right? He had to show that sequence because it's a true story. How do you change it and make that coda text uh, not? completely heartsick like okay so they get across the border and then what well it turns out ins got him and he was arrested and she was sent to guatemala would you want to read all that on the text without seeing that last scene no but but at the same time it's like i mean like i guess i was like was that the story so i guess this is what is interesting about this story really focusing on richard boyle as the photojournalist, it it becomes and taking us to the point that it does, it really becomes less about what's going on in El Salvador and more just about Richard Boyle and his life. And so it's it's an interesting approach. Like, it's not a film about what's going on in El Salvador. So is it a film about him learning? Uh, I mean, what what's he learning over the course of this and by having the end uh, pointed out that way? I mean, what's your sense? Well, I, I think you have a you have a great point. And it goes back to how Stone originally pitched this. Right. He he says in Chasing the Light, he says, I'd sold this film to our producer as Hunter Thompson uh, and his buddy go to Salvador. Right. Th- and, and it just is a dark story. Now, if we've seen Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, you know that that's a story about the guy. That's a story about the guy and substance abuse and his experience and where he is doesn't really matter, right? He's going to run into conflict and craziness and and that's where he is. And and that I feel like that intention is worth noting because so much of this is on the shoulders of James Woods as this guy. And he could have gone back to, you know, Guatemala or Iran or Vietnam or Chile or Belfast or Lebanon. You could have picked it up anywhere in these places of conflict where he, the real photojournalist, had worked and reported and gotten a similar story. Right. Yeah. It's just it, it becomes because his character, like if we're watching this guy, he's got, you know, I don't think he really has that much of a character arc. He already knew there was a lot of terrible stuff happening down here like as soon as soon as he and jim belushi get there i mean the first thing that he says to him is like you know people get killed down here 
you know, it, it's like he knows this is a bad place. He's been here before. He already has this contentious relationship that he kind of alludes to a few times with the with Major Max, who is the the new or the the head of the military who's kind of running the country. So we so what is he learning? Is it is he learning to love? And is he learning to like, I, I guess it's just I struggle with what his his arc is in this film. And if we're following him and we're just seeing this and it's like, is it this connection to Maria? Because I struggle with that because it's just like he's he's terrible with women. He seems to be the guy who has a woman in every port and a, a baby in every port. You know, his first wife that we see him with um, bails on him and takes the kid back to Italy, which he never seems that upset about, although he has that one throwaway line. I'll guess I'll miss that kid or whatever. And and now he's got this other woman and neither of the kids are his, but he's really connected to her for some reason. And it's just, I don't know. I just really struggled with this whole story and his character as our focus, because I'm just like, why, why am I caring about you? You know, why? So at the end, he's suddenly, you know, he, I mean, he's, talked about getting her her papers through the film like he really wants to get the cedula the kind of the her her citizenship papers so that she can leave the country with him and they have to forge it and get it to get her out blah 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 but i just like by the time we get to that ending i just feel like it's oliver stone really um using it as another opportunity to point out the political uh his political views which i mean i agree with his political views but i just i'm like in context of what i'm doing with this particular story i'm just like am i am i caring about what's going on in el salvador am i caring about you and your relationship with maria have i seen any sign of growth with you like why am i watching this movie that's that's my frustration here if we look at the big moments um and, and i don't know if this is going to support or or not your position. I'm I'm really curious. If we look at the big moments, and I think the the we have the assassination of the archbishop, and we have the the um, the rape scene of the nuns. Both of those are important events to him. I would submit that the nuns was the the more important event to him because he had such a personal connection with one of them. What is your sense of how his arc was impacted by those events? It's an interesting question because we also have with the first one, correct me if I'm wrong, the way things played out, but we have the assassination of Archbishop Romero, which, you know, I'm, I'm guessing that the script or the, the reality of uh, Richard Boyle's story was rewritten in order to make it work where he happened to be there right in front when Romero was killed. I have a feeling that was um, a lot of some liberties with the truth. but. After that, is that when he takes on the role of like the outspoken journalist when they're at that event with Major Max and he's like yelling all of his questions at him about running the death squads and stuff? Is that does that happen right afterward? Yeah, I think that's after that. Right. And he start. he said, <laughs> Max says, I'm very disappointed by that question. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, but I mean, I don't know, I guess. I mean, yes, it seemed like he was more personally affected by the death of the nuns because Kathy was with them, right? Path Kathy was driving them um, from Guatemala and and taking them somewhere, and they were stopped and and raped and killed. And I mean, it was a horrifying thing. He definitely seemed to have a relationship with Kathy, but it 
it seemed like when he went and saw the body, it seemed like the relationship with Kathy was amplified more than it had ever been shown in the film. Like he puts a ring on her finger and all this stuff. And I'm like, is there a more of a backstory with this relationship that I'm just unaware? Because I was like, I know that they were always friendly and, and you know, they had this cutesy relationship and stuff, but he seemed to have that with all of his connections that he kept meeting down in El Salvador. Right. That he would like whether they were journalists or like that other woman who was working with the um, the guy who was helping people find their missing uh, yeah, right, family and stuff right. like that. So he seemed to have this connection with people. And so all of a sudden, Kathy's death seemed like really monumental to him. And I'm like, what did I miss a scene where Kathy was such a strong connection that he's like putting a ring on her finger and all this stuff? Uh, so, yes, I mean, I think it did hit him strongly. I think. But I think things keep building over the film where, you know, I mean, violence keeps happening. Like, there's just a lot of terrible stuff happening. Because after that, he's just going out again with Cassidy. And they're just, you know, now he's kind of Cassidy's, quote, assistant. And they're going out and taking a bunch of photos and stuff. So, I don't know. I guess it it seemed like it affected him. But it didn't seem to change much about him. You know, he's just, all he's doing again is just going out and doing his stuff again. That's that was exactly I'm so glad that's where you went with it, because that's exactly my point, that they're trying to amplify that relationship in service of his position after that point in the film and at great disservice to his place before that point in the film. And that, I think, was really frustrating. It was unearned emotional connection because he's seen a lot of death and a lot of bodies and he's seen a lot of his friends killed and the fact that this one hurt that much then had not been telegraphed leading up to that point. And I really struggle with that because he's such a flippage of it, to your point. He's just, he's, his relationships are, are uncertain. And I think that, that makes him a hard character to, to kind of fall in love with, even as he's not, he's not a likable guy. Like when I, and like I, we've watched movies with not likable protagonists. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. He's not likable and confusing. And I think that's where it it becomes a challenge to to anchor to him as he drags us through this movie. Very much so. Like, I love all of the points that Oliver Stone is making. Like when he when Boyle has his his monologue with the country club guys, when he's uh, the whole thing with the ending, like, I really enjoy these things. But like, what is it doing to him as a character? Like, I really want to see him starting somewhere and ending somewhere over the course of the film and he just he doesn't i just i I don't feel like he's really that great of a character to follow and so it's just i guess it's just frustrating to me compare it to jim belushi's arc i mean doc rock like falls in love gets like married cleans up stops drinking ends up like kind of standing taking him to the border in a clean shirt for the first time like over the arc of time characters change around him uh, around Boyle and Boyle doesn't give us any of that benefit and and or as much of that benefit and I wonder if maybe that's the point that we're missing is that you know the world changes around him and he does not uh, and and that becomes part of his sort of existential conflict maybe if that's the case I I I didn't enjoy that time with him. Like I didn't, I wasn't able to sort of learn anything from his experience. I guess what I would say, maybe what I would see as kind of the thrust of what Stone is trying to do with his character is that here's a guy who comes down. He's obviously 
very much the photojournalist mentality. And I think you can see that directly because when he's first out with Cassidy, they're out at the at the uh, dumping grounds, which is uh, just a horrifying location full of all the dead bodies that the, the, uh, the death squads just kind of dump there after they've killed them. Horrifying scene. It does seem to affect Boyle to a certain extent. He doesn't necessarily want to be there. But at the same time, both of them are like talking about trying to find that magic shot and stuff. And it's just like this weird conversation to be having about the art of the photojournalist and finding that shot that's going to, that's going to, you know, sell what the war is in that single photo and stuff. And it's such a, um, it's such dissociative, an outs- dissociated. Right? Yeah. Yeah. In the, in this context of walking around this mound of dead bodies, it's kind of a horrifying conversation. And so I guess, you know, if that's kind of the quote starting place of him as, you know, the guy who's wanting to just make a living capturing these stories and telling these stories. And he once was a guy who made more of a name for himself because he wrote that, that book that he talked about uh, a number of times of uh, flower of the dragon um, of his photos from Vietnam. And, mm-hmm. He's still trying to capture that glory that he had. and uh, But by the time we get to the end, it's become more personal because he does have this connection with Maria. And it's less about capturing it so that he can make a name for himself from the horrors of the war and now more personalized because of his immediate connection to Maria. I would I would say that's what Stone's going going for. I just don't. I just have a hard time buying it. Yeah, I think that's true. And that's that is really I mean, I think that's a really good point because I'm. I'm with you. I like many of the elements of the film. And I think that sequence uh, in the Mountain of Bodies is incredibly important to the movie. It's important to Stone's intention with the movie, to what he's trying to to show us or or what I'm assuming he's trying to show us uh, about the job, that dissociative element about the job. Like that is their job is to show me the guy who's not there, how bad this is. Right. And to do it in a way that will connect with me so that Maybe I'll take action. Maybe I will, I will, you know, have be able to form an opinion of my own uh, about right and wrong, good or bad, etc. I, I like all of that. I like the way that is strung together. I think there are some very strong images in in this movie, and I think pushing toward you know more of the madness and violence, uh, you know, to the point of having the movie contested by censors. Like th- there, are, there are some great bits about how you know they had to make changes to to this movie because censors wouldn't buy it it was really mad i actually i generally like james woods in the movie i think he is a strong performer of stone's material you know when he is on he's really on like i think james woods if you separate what what i don't like about the richard boyle arc i think james woods is interesting and captivating to to watch as a performer. Um, and so that's why I am deeply conflicted a- about this movie, about kind of how I how I feel about it. I didn't necessarily enjoy my time with it because of that sort of flat boil arc. But all of the components, I think, were were engaging for me. Yeah. And I mean, to that end, I would agree with you. I think that uh, James Woods is very engrossing in his performance of this character. And I I think actors really do get a lot out of playing unlikable characters. It allows for a lot. Oh, he made a meal out of it for sure. Oh yeah. yeah. He's very interesting and unlikable guy throughout, but I, I really enjoy the way that he plays him. He has that 
photojournalist uh, kind of drive to kind of, you know, get the lead and stuff like that. I, I think that he does a great job and it is compelling to watch. I mean, I'm not saying it's a bad film. It's just it, he's a hard character to stick with. And I don't really understand his story arc, but I think that he does make uh, Oliver Stone does make a compelling two hour story to watch. It's it's an interesting one to to look at. But I think a lot of that just also comes from the watching, you know, the politics, the 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 journalist side of something so horrific happening in a country like El Salvador at this time. Yeah. I a point a side point that makes me crazy about this movie and it's not about the movie because I think the movie authentically captured exactly my experience with this freelance photojournalists these stringers make me nuts Andy I can't watch them because they treat their equipment so bad <laughs> and I love gear so much like I want to have it forever and ever and they it's just awful when they're throwing lenses at each other in this rocky terrain no 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 i hate it and that is every every stringer every freelance shooter i've ever met and it just goes all the way back to my experience in journalism school they all somehow are like this and i was never able to to carry that mantle i have always been uh, a bit of a prima donna with any gear that is my own i hate it so much I think you're probably more like them. <laughs> hey, if someone's paying you and they're going to they're going to buy your broken equipment, then yeah, why not throw it around? That's what I <laughs> See, say. that's the problem. Uh, <laughs> makes me crazy. You're part of the I, problem. I want to talk about uh, just a couple other points that you, since you just brought this up. I do feel like the story was not that great at following the life of of Boyle as a journalist. Like there were elements in here that were brought in that I'm like, why is this a point suddenly? For example, the, I believe it's the CNN reporter has to go to a different country and report something there. And so he says, Hey, it's yours. You've got the job, Boyle. And Boyle's all thrilled. Oh, great. I've, I've get to do this now. But then that never goes anywhere. I'm like, are we just, are we seeing that just to, you know, make sure that he stays in the action? Like, I guess I was just a little, I, I didn't feel like there was uh, there were enough elements that were giving me what I needed to really explore why he's here, who's paying him, uh, stuff like that. It just it it was odd having some moments like that that didn't give me the payoffs that I was hoping that they'd have. Yeah, I guess that's true. I I felt like the the pieces of him just doing the work. Uh, we have the the stuff in the war zone which I, I think is is good. Like, he's always got his camera, it's up. And we have the stuff at parties. The stuff at parties I had a little bit of trouble with, and this is, you know, comes from inexperience on my own part. I've never shot in, a you know, a, that sort of a context. So I don't know what it looks like. Um, I don't know what it feels like to be to be to play that role. Um, but it did feel to me like he wasn't taking enough photos. You know what I mean? Like, he just... <laughs> yeah, right. He just was not shooting enough. And uh, I uh, that I, I struggled with that. I kept thinking, you're a photographer, man. You're missing shots. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Like when I can see shots that he's missed because of good blocking in a scene, I feel like he should just have his camera up to his eye more. Uh, yeah, so I struggled right, a little right. bit with that. Yeah, yeah. There were a lot of exchanges of money, though. I mean, there were a lot of them paying each other. There were a number of those kinds of sequences that were 
uh, so undersold that that you almost mistake them for, you know, not being a part of his job. But that was his job sure. was, you know, working yeah. with other journalists and do it, getting the shots and that kind of thing. So I did like seeing some journalism uh, or some of the journalists with uh, very antagonist antagonistic relationships toward each other. Like he's oh, has him that and one... Pauline Axelrod were great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's great to watch the two of them. I love yeah, it. I love watching anytime you get that behind the scenes, a bunch of journalists like hanging around, cleaning their equipment that now desperately needs cleaning and attention and like looking at shots and like talking to one another. That's It's all really great stuff. It's great stuff. Yeah, yeah very much. You know, I just, you know, I have to go back to this point, though, that we were talking about kind of the the whole thing and Stone getting his message across. I do have to bring up as another point of issue that I have with this is that I'm unsure that Oliver Stone really cared about society in El Salvador. Like, I don't think he actually he doesn't seem to care about the people and and his perspective on the people, the citizens of El Salvador seemed very odd and off-putting, very American uh, outsider point of view, depicting the the poor people like, you know, drugs are very loose, uh, you know, everyone is, you know, just they're all wanting sex and all this sort of stuff. Like when they're having sex, like it seems super casual, like he and Maria are naked in the hammock together. Her kids are there watching and smiling, <laughs> all this sort of weird stuff. And I'm like, is does he, is is his whole intention of making this film purely to look at American policies toward countries like El Salvador. Like, I feel like that is almost the reason that he's doing this more so than any sympathy toward the the El Salvadoran people. I wonder, Andy, though, would you say, when you think of other Oliver Stone movies that you know, that Oliver Stone is generally known of as attentive to the people of of the places that he's talking about? I mean, it's certainly something we can talk about as we move forward in this conversation. But I, I think that it speaks to Oliver Stone. And I think this is something we're going to jump into quite a bit. Oliver Stone as a filmmaker who has very particular political points of view, and he yeah. wants to get them across in his film. Um, it, we'll, we'll see this, I'm sure, when we get to Platoon in a couple weeks and Born on the Fourth of July. I'm curious to to see, you know, what's he saying about uh, society in Vietnam? It's probably not until, what is the third in his Vietnam trilogy, um, uh, Heaven and Earth, where he probably does more exploring of the Vietnam society rather than just Americans in Vietnam. But um, I, yeah. I, I think he, I think you're a, spot on, right? This This is a guy with an agenda. And anything that distracts from or gets in the way of that agenda is diminished. Yeah. And that's yeah. just who he is. That's what's written on the tin. I think that's. Oh, that's I, I think so. Stone. It's just it's stony. I think, I, it's stony. I think that there are uh, times when it. Um, I don't know. I, I find it frustrating because I feel like I, I would like to see a little more out of this. And I think yeah, as an interesting comparison for people is look at the film Romero about the Archbishop Romero uh, and his assassination. It's, I mean, it's not it's not a great film, but I find it to be a really compelling film about this Archbishop that is uh, portrayed by uh, Raul Julia, uh, who I think is just really fantastic in the role. And I think, um, what was it? Like, it was actually like the, the, the priests, like the, the Paulist fathers actually funded the film. So it's an interesting comparison to uh, and possibly a little more focused on the Alf Salvadorans themselves in that particular film. 
Um, so as an interesting comparison, I think people should check that film out by John Dwegan. I have not seen it. I'll add it to a letterboxed list. I, I quite enjoy it. And Raul Julia. Oh, I, d- I know who he is. Fantastic in the film. Yeah. I, I think your point is well taken about, though, uh, you know, thinking about what what Stone portrays here in terms of, you know, Salvadoran society, Central American society. It's different. It's different. And and some of that we just need our character to go through and explore what's different. And so much of that here is Boyle celebrating the stuff he can do that is OK in Salvador that is not OK in New York. You yeah. know? Yeah, he's that's what he does to that end. It's it's there. it's an interesting film. And I think in context of Oliver Stone and his journey kind of becoming the filmmaker that he does, I think this directing opportunity that he had here is a great stepping stone moving forward to create kind of the, quote, Oliver Stone film or films that are stoned, as we'll call them now. Yeah. Yeah, they've gotten the full stone treatment. I can't wait to add that to our shirt. I know. We need the updated shirts, stickers. Kubrickian, Spielbergian, stoned. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. What do we we want to do now? Do we want to get into getting it made? So much getting it made. There's a lot about getting it made that I think is, uh, is interesting. Um, do you want to t- kick it off? Any particular points you want to talk about first? Well, the first one, we, we started a little bit talking about censorship and, and what was hard about this movie, um, you know, in terms of, of getting it made and approved, um, that in fact, the, the scene, uh, it, the major scene in question is the dinner, right? When they go, when they're brought in after getting beaten up and they go meet Figueroa. Uh, they, they'd been arrested for being journalists. They were going to be shot for being journalists. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm good friends with Figueroa. And Figueroa happens to remember them. And he remembers that Boyle had once written this this article uh, about him that was that was good, this dictator. And uh, and so they have this dinner and they eat. And in, originally, um, you know, they were all having sex around this table, right? That it was it, it all in various degrees of sex. And Boyle is having sex, and he's trying to get information from the colonel who is there also having sex. And at one point, uh, the colonel pulls out a bag of ears, right? War trophies. He pack, pulls out these ears. He puts one in a glass of champagne and he is he drinks it with the champagne. And then he takes another ear and puts it in a prostitute's mouth. And it is just I mean, it's over the top. And apparently, and he, and he says, you know, left wing ears, right wing ears, you know, who gives an F? And uh, he, he, as he's doing this, and it was really terrible. And apparently, that scene was rough for the uh, government censors. And they said, this is not going to happen. Uh, and it took a long time to figure out, um, you know, the how to manage that sexual content. And it ended up getting, getting, chopped and and he the oliver stone apparently felt very strongly about that 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 was that was part of the madness of the experience that had to be felt 
um, you know, by leaving that scene in. And I'm, I'm curious what you think of the final sequence as we got it. Um, you know, much of this, I'm great thanks to, uh, Brian Blake, community member and, uh, friend of the show. And, uh, he's, um, avid, happens to be in an avid research phase of Oliver Stone. He helped us, uh, out with some, some stuff last weekend, this week. And, and so, um, I don't want to forget to thank Brian for, for all of his help. Um, what did you think of that sequence as it relates to the recuts? Did you notice? Did it feel kind of jarring to you? I don't think so. I think, uh, you know, if I watched it again, I could probably tell that it had been chopped up a little bit and and uh, truncated. Um, as it as it stands, I don't recall much from it, honestly. It just like it didn't stand out as much of a scene other than, oh, he really is friends with Figueroa. Oh, you know, there are a bunch of women here and like that. Oh, that woman is grabbing James Wood's crotch and mm-hmm. he and uh, Belushi both walk off with women. And that was basically the extent of my thoughts with that particular scene. Yeah, yeah, I so. yeah, I think so, too. But I think the fact that that you don't remember much from that scene is the point, right? Like, yeah. oh, yeah. Why sure. is the scene there? Well, it has to be there because we have this arc uh, that leads up to that dinner and we have to show the dinner like it just i think you have to show that they are winding and dining together but i think it it has um i i just think it has less impact than than it would i probably on on stone's side well you know and to the point about when we talked about scarface i think that the ratings board can sometimes cut things out that are good to keep in there. And the fact that Brian De Palma really fought to keep some of these scenes in that films and bringing people in saying, look, this is stuff that's really happening. Like there are these things that are actively happening down there. So all we're doing is portraying the realities of it. And, uh, you know, of course he ended up sneaking in and releasing the, the unrated version anyway. So it almost didn't matter. But I I think it's interesting that stone was essentially doing the same thing, putting stuff in that's really happening. And it's just, you know, the ratings board is always there to say, people don't want to watch that. People don't want to see that. And I'm like, you know what? I, I, it's worth putting in there. I honestly would love to see a, you know, a cut that had these scenes in it and just see what it, what, what power it ended up bringing to it. Yeah, right. Uh, the the other piece that I think is interesting about this is the struggle with getting it. I, and I know it's budgetary, and so you should really be talking about it. But this was an interesting note that I had never considered. They shot this thing in Mexico, and the budget dropped too early. Did you hear about this? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they, um, because of the, uh, it's always a thing. Anytime you're dealing with a production budget between two different countries, you know, you you have a set budget for your film and you go into a different country to use it. And all of a sudden your exchange rate changes. I've been on a couple productions. Um, I mean, it's not as drastic, but, you know, between us and the UK, where all of a sudden things changed because the exchange rates changed and all of a sudden, you know, it was much more expensive for them to work over here. And same thing in this particular case, the peso dropped against the dollar and 20% of their budget went away. And so that made that it a lot non-trivial. more non-trivial. No, that is not like a little one or 5% type yeah. of change. That's a big chunk of money that disappeared. Um, so I, I can very much understand the frustrations dealing with something like that. It makes it very hard when you're going into production. Yeah. 
I did think it was interesting that initially Oliver Stone did actually want to film this in El Salvador. <laughs> he wanted to go in there um, with a fake script that he would get approval from the government with and use that and then, you know, shoot his film and then get out of there. And of course, you know, I think smarter heads prevailed said, you know what, maybe that's not a good idea. You know, it's not a safe country to be in. Maybe we should just uh, skip that and and find somewhere else to film. Um, but that's Stone always pushing to, uh, you know, pushing to try doing something to capture as much uh, realism as possible. What do you what do you think the other script would have been? Right. Oliver Stone films like My Little Pony in El Salvador. You know, in the annals of Hollywood history, I would love it to be something like Argo, right? Yeah, exactly. That's what I. That's the story Use I want to hear. Script, yeah. right? So funny. It's the it's the script that Hollywood always passes around when they need to use it as a guise for something else to yeah. get done. Totally. <laughs> Argo's finally back on the books. <laughs> we, uh, I, I, we certainly can't uh, move too much further through this conversation than talk uh, without talking about the relationship between James Woods and um, and Oliver Stone. Apparently, it was uh, contentious. Contentious, but they both seem to be okay with that. Yeah. I think both of them probably recognized that it's helpful and provided them with what they need. I mean, they worked together again. They worked together later in uh, Nixon and uh, Any Given Sunday, I believe, are the two films that they worked together yeah, it's, again. That, it's funny that you say it that way, too, because this is, it's sort of the kind of an aspirational kind of confrontation, right? Where the two guys go at each other, push each other really hard, get really mad, but but do it with such respect that they um, that they end up you know, respecting the work that comes out the other side. You don't you don't always hear those stories in Hollywood. James Woods says this about Oliver Stone. Working with Stone was like being caught in a Cuisinart with a madman, and he felt the same about me. It was two Tasmanian devils wrestling under a blanket. Still, he was a sharp director. He starts with a great idea, delegates authority well, scraps like a street fighter, then takes the best of what comes out of the fracas. <laughs> Nicer words were never spoken. <laughs> <laughs> I just love the two Tasmanian devils wrestling under a blanket I know, uh, that's description there. And then Oliver Stone had this to say about James Woods. I don't believe in confronting everyone, but I think confronting Jimmy helped. He wasn't used to being confronted, and I think he gave the best performance I'd seen him do because I drove him nuts. <laughs> At least he knows. I There is a, a scene where um, that stress was really pushed, and that's in the, the final war zone. And, and uh, part of it... I. I have trouble understanding the mechanics of how this worked. And so I'm just going to we'll just get it all out there. Woods apparently walked off set for the plane scene. Uh, apparently there were power lines above him and he was wired down. The single engine old planes was supposed to fly in low. Oliver Stone's looking at the scene and Stone says, God, I miss combat. And Woods heard him say that and got very upset and walked off scene walked off set um it, it, it's an incredibly powerful sequence right the death of of um you know his friend and and colleague and the fact that there is that handoff of the film canisters or like i yeah. got the shot i got the shot now you need to take it and right. get it home but i guess to that point now that i'm saying all that out loud like there is i think often when you have great photography movies right there is more of an affinity for that that one shot, right? What is the magical shot? It's the Walter Mitty shot, which I think that film does so well. And and in this movie, they've set up this 
I've got the shot sequence with only one other sequence in the movie that deals with the shot. And that was the mountain of bodies. And it was an hour and a half earlier. And uh, and so I feel like there isn't quite enough of a thread to allow us to feel as powerful toward that moment uh, for the for the photographic greatness of it. I don't know. Does that make any sense? Oh, 100%. Because it absolutely speaks, again, to another problem with this film. You're circling back, really, just kind of the overall problem with the film is is Oliver Stone, I don't think, was caring much about the war in El Salvador. I think he was very much caring about how the United States um, or or how it was affecting its people, right? His His perspective is very governmental. It's what are these governments doing to the people without caring about the people? And I think that's Stone's perspective with this film because we never even get to see the photo and i was like if this is a moment and it's going to be something that is like oh we've got to save this photo because this photo as they say in their conversation earlier this you got to find the photo that is the one image that can represent for you know what this means to these people and what this means so so people over there can understand what's happening here and we never get to see that photo and if you look online and you see some of uh john Hoagland's actual photos, he does have some powerful photos from El Salvador and other places that he's been. So so it's like, why not actually, when we get to the end of it, show that cover of Newsweek with one of these photos or something like that, you know? And it's like, I don't know, I felt like, I felt like Stone brought that forward as a key point in the film, or I shouldn't even say that he brought it forward as a point in the film that they have that conversation about and then turns it into, as you said, this thing that that whole ending was about. And it just it's like, is it is that what it's about here? I, I don't know. And it like, I mean, I don't know. It just it felt like it was kind of out of the blue. And even with with the death of Cassidy, I mean, he was one of 16 journalists who were killed in El Salvador. More than 75,000 people who were who were El Salvadorans either disappeared or were killed. It's like I, I I feel like we lose track of what we're really caring about with all of this. There there is another emotional point too with that character that that uh, you know I think is is really important when Cassidy you know he is so determined to stand in the way of the the war right to stand in the middle of the war and he you know he says the camera is a shield right the camera is a shield that's uh, it is one of those things that um you know he's um i think a lot of photojournalists who put themselves in harm's way to capture these images to tell that story uh, i think they really you know that is an important part of the of the job um and I think that it is celebrated, maybe not enough in the movie, right? It, it is it, because at the very end, I felt that was such a powerful thing. And it yet again is another reminder that I kind of I kind of wish that this had been more of a photography movie and, and less of a James Woods Boyle movie. Or even like photography or just a story about, you know, Al Salvador. I mean, yeah, it's just it, it ended up being kind of. Interesting in so many ways, but also frustrating in so many ways because I, I just don't feel like I don't feel like the stories is as clear as 
other than Stone's politics, I don't feel like this the yeah. story is as clear as it could have been. Well, and and James Woods, I, one more point on this whole James Woods thing. I, I think the problem when we're looking when we're trying to track change in a character is how the character demonstrates that they uh, their acceptance of their level of uh, in life, right, wherever they are, you know. And I can see the case being made for him being at a at a dead end uh in his career in his life at the beginning of the film and he comes to learn you know the power of love and the power of politics and the power of war uh in in El Salvador the problem is when we meet him in New York he he or I maybe should say James Woods does not communicate that he is anything other than accepted of his place like he is I don't get any sense that he is different today when we meet him than he was 10 years ago when he was in, you know, Vietnam or wherever, right? It seems like he's already adapted to being this kind of guy. I don't get the fact that, get the point that he's upset about it. He's always asking for money. I mean, that that becomes a, a kind of a comic uh, element in the film starts with 2000 goes down to 500 by the end he's asking for 10 bucks you know um just just pocket change traveling money um and uh that that becomes kind of a funny element but i don't get the get the fact that he's you know he's uh, already at the end of his ropes and that this is a movie that's that's you know chronicling his return uh to favor or his efforts to return to favor professionally and personally yeah. I just don't. Right. I, it just doesn't telegraph that to me. That's all. No, I think that's. I think that's a big problem with the film. Yeah. Uh, what do you think of, of uh, Jim Belushi? I, you know, I think he's fine in the role. I didn't really care for the Doctor Rock character, and I think he's really only there because Boyle and he apparently really drove there. That seems yeah, to be yeah. his whole purpose, and it. It almost served for me more as a distraction. Like it, it's a, it's another character. I'm like, why am I caring about this guy in his experience in El Salvador rather than actual people in El Salvador? Like it just, it just was a character I was so uninterested in. I mean, I like Jim Belushi. I think he's been in some really good stuff. I just didn't care for this extra character here. Yeah, I, I get that. Um, I, I liked him uh, personally. I think more than than you and i i didn't have a problem with the extra character because uh, i think it sets the stage well for their drive uh and and uh, i didn't you know i i think they're both unlikable characters but then to watch us sort of dip back into uh dr rock's experience almost anecdotally Throughout the course of the film, it sort of is punctuated by by watching him fall further and further and then kind of climb back up. I actually thought that was an interesting mechanic. And 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 so I didn't I, I didn't find it as much of a distraction then as uh, as uh, as more compelling. Um, and, and I think that uh, once again, the apparently Woods and Belushi had some real issues on scene on set together. And and uh, uh, Belushi was the new and and uh, less experienced actor. And uh, so he starts out taking uh, taking tips from from James Woods and eventually has is they're like calling each other's agents and and uh, uh, talking about how, you know, Woods is trying to trying to sneak the back of his head into the frame too far during Belushi's close up over the shoulder reaction shots. <laughs> and uh, it just ends up being a real uh, nightmare of an experience between the two of them. 
I don't know, you know, I, I, I don't see a lot of Belushi Woods camaraderie today, but um, <laughs> uh, I don't know how that paid out, played out. Yeah, where's the Josh Gad reunited apart for this movie? <laughs> uh, yeah. I like the politics. Uh, I, I liked uh, Michael Murphy as Thomas Kelly. I, I think he does a, a fine job playing the role of the avatar for U.S. Po- politics in the country and actually gives a chance to, to both uh, demonstrate uh, through him and the military experience, uh, the military leadership, um, just how hard it is to get truth and accuracy and also how to do the right thing ultimately in the end. There was a, a little act of hope in this Oliver Stone film that comes in the work of Thomas Kelly, uh, Michael Murphy as Thomas Kelly. And I, I liked that, you know, when he turns around off the plane and, and ends up sort of saving the day for, uh, for our guys at the border. You think that that's, that's going to be the final great redemption and everything's going to be great. Uh, of course it's not, but uh, you think it is. It feels pretty good. Yeah, yeah, I think you liked it more than I did. That felt very scripted. It's like, just like all of a sudden this call to the, the ambassador gets them out of the whole situation. I was like, eh, all right, okay, sure. Okay, all right, I see where you're going. With it. I, see, I see who you are with this movie. I get it, <laughs> I get it. Uh, anybody else you want to talk about specifically in the cast? We're going to wrap it up. I think that uh, John Savage is always great. I, oh. I really enjoy seeing him pop up here. I mean, we've talked about him, the deer hunter. I can't remember if we talked about him on Do the Right Thing. He's got a <laughs> very small part there. Uh, yeah. Godfather Part 3, he was in that. Uh, he's one of those actors who I think, especially in this particular point of time, I just really love his look. I think that he um, carries a lot of presence. I do too. Uh, I I like him a lot, and I I kind of hate watching movies where he has a small part because I generally wish that he was yeah he the movie was about him. Um, Elpidia Carrillo, she plays Maria. I thought she was fine. You know, it's not a big part. There's not much, but I tell you, the reason that maybe I enjoyed the ending so much is because that moment with her at the end, I felt was they they actually gave her something to do, and I was like, okay, that there was really an interesting painful moment when she agrees to say goodbye to him yeah right yeah. right uh it, it's hard apparently she had some issues uh she had a tendency to just blank out uh forget lots of stuff there were lots of reshoots involving her work um and that stone really struggled with her the word is as he says it is uh, apparently that in uh um, in mexico and mexican filmmaking it was very much just do what i tell you to do and when oliver stone is giving so much to these actors to sort of carry the weight of finding their internal struggle and and you know uh, improvising and um you know there there are many stories around the improvisational around big sequences in this film she struggled with that and um and had to be had to be directed more which was not something that oliver stone was was keen on doing so uh, i i end up i thinking I, I think she's great i mean i i liked her but like you she doesn't have a whole lot to do no, no, I think she's given um maybe a little more in something like Predator. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Maybe. Uh Tony Plana pops in as Major Max. Uh he's one of those faces that I've always loved seeing. Um and he will end up kind of popping into some more Oliver Stone films uh down the road. But uh, you know, he's a guy who definitely keeps busy and is is fun to watch. 
Cynthia Gibb is uh, in this movie is the driver of the nuns. I think she's a nun. I think she is she's actually not. a nun. She, she's, she's not? not a nun. She they call her the the real woman. She's they call her like a layperson. Um, so I, I oh, think that right. she's yeah. she's a person who's down there just working with these different groups trying to help. And she's one of those people who is just drawn to helping these people in, who need aid. She is uh, one of those faces from back in the day for me. Um, she was in Youngblood uh, before this. I think it was the same year um, with Rob Lowe. Uh, she was uh, in a Depeche Mode video, Modern Girls, uh, Short Circuit 2, and then a lot of TV. Uh, and so she's her face has been around for a long, long time. And uh, it was really funny to see her. Like, I had to go do some pretty serious uh, photo browsing of stills from all of the things that I'd seen her in and didn't recognize that it was her. Uh, it was really fun. Uh, I think she's fine. I, yeah, I mean, she's fine. She, she looked really young. <laughs> really like, young. To, yeah. They cast like, when he I mean, kisses her in the beginning, they, he kisses yeah. her on the mouth. And I thought, get, get off of her. Right. Come on. Right. Uh, too young uh, you know 22 or so when they made this and i mean he's 40 something so i mean yeah it it does seem a little awkward but she looks like she's like you know 15 (laughs) yeah totally camera robert richardson he's somebody who starts with stone here and will work with stone for you know quite a while i think he's going to be uh we'll be talking about him throughout this uh, the rest of this series now but he goes on working with stone um you know through the 90s and i think that may be the end into like u-turn territory uh, i think that he just you know i mean he's and then he, of course he's working with quentin tarantino now i mean i think he is a dp who captures strong images i mean you look at stuff like uh the horse whisperer which is just a stunning film I, I think that he knows how to capture landscapes and mm-hmm. the the work here of a lot of the kind of horrors of war and stuff. I think he captures pretty effectively. He has won the Academy Award for Best Cinematography three times, JFK, The Aviator, and Hugo. And he is one of only three living persons who won the Academy Award for Best Cinematography three times. The other two being Vittorio Storaro and Emmanuel Lubezki. Hmm. Yeah, and he is up there uh tie for first place for uh coolest looking cinematographer with Hoitevan Hoitema. Um, <laughs> he's got this long white hair and the long white and the white beard and he looks uh, he looks like a wizard, frankly. He looks like a wizard and I want to hang out with him. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I love it. Uh Georges Delarue did the music and you know I'll tell you that my favorite part of the film might be the opening credits when you have a very, uh, something that feels like st- straight out of Costa Gavras's Z, the way that the credits, credits are cut, the way that uh, Delarue's music plays, uh, just like that black and white stark news photography look. That was a stunning open for this film. And I, I think it might be the highlight for me of Delarue's music in the film. But overall, I think that his music works well. I think it works well. I found myself longing to go listen to Platoon again. I'm excited to get back to that because uh, that's a score that I actually remember. And I suddenly, as we talk about it, I realized I didn't go back and listen to this one again after I watched the movie. And I regret it because I don't remember any of it. Mm. Well, that opening track, I think, um, may be the highlight of it. It's really strong. Well, the highlight of it, in addition to 
you know, a, a real showcase for editing for Claire Simpson. I mean, uh, the whole yeah. thing, I think, is edited intelligently, especially given the constraints around censorship and the things that that uh, she had to do. But but that opening sequence is jarring and uh, uh, engaging and uh, assaulting uh, all of the, you know, hard words. Uh, <laughs> and I found it <laughs> a great way to just sort of introduce us to the world uh, and use that old footage and do it in a way that is going to wake you right up before you get into the story itself so she'll she'll be working with stone on platoon and wall street after this um and this is her follow-up to her work on chud everybody's oh outstanding what a fantastic follow-up this is the i've often heard this as the spiritual sequel to chud (laughs) some say yes uh do you like the title salvador or do you prefer its original andy I don't know if I, you could call it the original, but certainly in the Philippines, uh, it is pretty well. It's odd that it took uh, a number of additional years to actually get this released. In fact, it wasn't released for six more years in the Philippines in '92. And when they released it, it was released as Guns, Goons, Gold. <laughs> I did. I I guess they're definitely guns. You could call a lot of these people goons. Where was the gold? Right. right. There was no gold. I don't know. I That's don't one know. thing that would have made this movie better. More gold. How'd it do at award season? Well, it had four wins, nine other nominations. At the Oscars, James Woods was nominated for Best Actor, but he lost to Paul Newman for The Color of Money. And Best Original Script was nominated but lost to Hannah and her sisters. Interestingly, Platoon was also nominated in this category, but uh, it it also lost um, at the Independent Spirit Awards. This is only the second year of the Independent Spirit Awards. I thought that was an interesting note. <laughs> James Woods actually won the award for Best Actor. The Picture, uh, Best Director, Cinematography, and Screenplay were all nominated, but all of them lost to Platoon. And in the case of both Oliver Stone for Director and Screenwriter and Robert Richardson for Cinematographer, they all lost to themselves. And uh, the female lead, I thought this was interesting. Elpidia Carrillo actually was nominated for female lead, lost to Isabella Rossellini in Blue Velvet. Who else would it be if not her in this movie? I mean, I think it's disingenuous to say there's even a female lead in this movie. Yeah, I think that, (laughs) yeah, it's a problem to, like, it should have just been uh, supporting. Yeah, Uh, right, right. At the National Society of Film Critics, um, Oliver Stone was nominated for this and his work in Platoon, but lost to David Lynch for Blue Velvet. And at the WGA Awards, it was nominated for Best Screenplay, but lost to Hannah and her sisters. So some some nominations, some good nominations, but not overall the film that was taken home many of them. But how did it do at the box office? Do people want to see a story like this in the on the big screen? Well, Stone's return to the director's chair cost $4.5 million to make, which is $10.5 million in today's money. Considering the fact that the three films he wrote prior to this each cost about five times this, it seems to suggest that he was given a small budget so they could, quote, try him out again. This movie premiered in New York City March 5th, 1986, then in L.A. April 11th before opening wide April 23rd, 1986, weirdly opposite 8 Million Ways to Die, his next film that we'll be talking about next week, along with Violets Are Blue. This film could not find its audience, unfortunately. It only earned $1.5 million at the box office, or $3.5 million 
in today's dollars. That lands the film with an adjusted loss per finished minute of $57,000. And that was another strike for Oliver Stone. That, uh, that okay, I, I know, we're, we're sort of middling to fair on this movie overall. Elements we like, elements we don't. On IMDb, this well uh, exceeds the IMDb six-star rule, 7.4. And of the movies that deal with this stuff at the time, I mean, uh, my man, uh, uh, JMV, his last plane out is a 4.6 on the IMDb scale <laughs> under fire that you said you had a higher memory, uh, a better memory of that film. It, it's a seven out of 10. This movie, 7.4 out of 10 on the IMDb scale. This is the highest rated of those three. It is a movie that is, I find fascinating. It ha- is it that this opinion of the movie has increased with the gift of time? I don't know. It's weird because even Romero, you put Romero on the list and that's a 7.1. And I would put that, again, I haven't seen any of these um, recently, but I would put Romero and Under Fire over Salvador. I I don't know. It's an interesting ranking and it makes me wonder if people are ranking it on memory or if they've gone back and rewatched it. I, I wonder that a little bit myself. And I also wonder, as long as we're armchairing a little bit, I would see Romero, Salvador, and Under Fire starring Chan Michael Vincent and give them a two-point bump easy. So. <laughs> of course you would. I see we need to take it to the mat. What do you think? Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see the list of movies that we've talked about on this very show. If you swipe over in your show notes, tap the word flick chart, it'll take you straight to this film in the flick chart database where you can add it to your list and see how it stands up against ours. First up, Salvador or La Cage au Fall. Um, I think I could go Salvador on this one. I'm definitely La Cage au Fall. All right. You can have it. All right. I don't feel that strongly about it. I know. I was wondering if you were going to fight me on it or not. Salvador or Rabid? Uh, Rabid. I'll say Rabid. Yeah, this one came up for me, too. Weird. Salvador or Labor Day? I would watch Salvador again first. I don't know if I'd put either of these on my watch list next. Yeah, but if you, but I, I mean, would say like, Salvador. You're on the, the desert island. You have yeah. a TV, these two movies. Yeah. Would you rather go play in the sand? Weirdly. I remember having good things to say about Labor Day. It's funny that it's fallen so low, and my interest in returning to it is so... Uh, Zero. You know, it's, it's pretty low, too, but I, I'll say Salvador here. All right. Salvador or the girl who played with fire? Girl, which one? No. <laughs> There's only one. <laughs> the, the girl only who one. played with fire. <laughs> yeah, the girl who played with fire. <laughs> it's such a hair-trigger <laughs> instinct for me. The girl who... Which one? Yeah, right. Salvador or duck, you sucker. Wow. I'm definitely Duck, You Sucker. Yeah, I'm Duck, You Sucker. I haven't thought about that movie in a while. Salvador or Lake Placid? Lake Placid. Lake Placid. Salvador or The Emigrants? Salvador. I'm definitely The Emigrants. All right. Just for I think you need grin, to rewatch The Emigrants because I think yeah, you'll God, find so, more to appreciate with it. Okay. I'm sure I did. And I think if I listened to that conversation, I would say nice things about it. I just... Like, in terms of a movie as sedative, The Emigrants is uh, high for me. I don't think you would think that. I think that you would say, wow, that was that was a really tough movie because it's a hard movie. There's a yeah, lot no, of just, like, it brutal is. It's cold, stuff. too. Yeah. All right, uh, so you, you want to fight about it, though, huh? No, not really. Now you're making me feel bad. <laughs> so I, I'll, I'm going to give you, I'll give you The Emigrants. The Emigrants. 
the lesson I learned here is I clearly did not find hard enough when it came time to 2001. Oh, no, I no, that's okay. You did fine. <laughs> Salvador gone with the wind. Oh, man. I'm going to say Salvador here only because I feel like I'm really, I mean, it's it does open one's eyes to the atrocities that were happening. I think the film is not that well constructed, but I, I do think it at least opens your eyes. So I'm going to say Salvador. I, I mean, I would say Salvador, too. I'm surprised to hear you say that. And I was trying to to muster my argument for, yes, okay, I know it's beautiful. But now I don't have to. You don't have to. All right. Salvador it is. Salvador or Amor? Uh, Amor. Amor. Yeah. Amor. Yeah. That lands Salvador in spot 431 on our chart out of 494 films, which is a 13%. 13%. That's pretty low. That's a lot lower than it was on mine. <laughs> How did it do on yours? (laughs) It's lower than it was on mine, but it was also low on mine. It landed in at 37%, a 2888 out of 4562. Wow. That's low. I, I guess I, I guess I like the movie more, um, (laughs) than, than you. Uh, I, it landed at 657 out of 1488, and that puts it at 56%. It is in the top half. Um, and that means if I go by the algorithm here at Flickchart, it should be a three-star movie over at uh, letterbox.com slash the next reel. And I'm going to stick there. I'm going to stick it at a three-star movie. I, I think it does enough. You know, it presents enough of Oliver Stone and his ideology that I find interesting to watch on film with performances that are interesting to watch on film, even though... I have real trouble with how many of those elements are put together. So I, I'm going to give it three stars. I'll even give it a heart. Oh, okay. Three stars and a heart. I am uh, a little rougher on this film. I think it's an interesting look at what was going on in El Salvador at the time. I just think that El- Oliver Stone could have found a stronger way to construct it had it not been us following Richard Boyle as the uh, as our uh, audience surrogate. That made it frustrating for me. I have a hard time going too much lower because I did find it engrossing. So I'm going to say two and a half. Uh, no okay. heart, though. So that rounds no us heart. to two point seven five, but with a heart. So there, there we sit. Okay. Well, that's fair. Um, I, I, I think we're, I think we're right on the, on either side of the fence on this film. I and I, I appreciate that. I, I honestly thought we were going to be. It was going to be more divisive uh, than than it ended up being. Uh, where do we where do we go from here in our Oliver Stone origin story series? Well, as I brought up, we're not going that far. Um, we're actually going to, as I said, a movie that was coming out the same week as this in movie uh, theaters. It was 8 Million Ways to Die. This is the last film that Oliver Stone wrote in his period of writing scripts, not directing them, that Hal Ashby ended up directing late in his career. This is uh, Jeff Bridges, Rosanna Arquette, and it should be an interesting one to look at. I've never seen it. I'm curious to jump in and check this one out. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterboxd giveth, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth.
Okay, now I'm sure you have, I don't know, you want to go first? I know you've got a couple and you probably have a position statement to tie them together. I have no position statement at all, but oh, okay. Why, why right. don't you go? Well, I'll go first. Okay, go ahead. So I've go got ahead. I've got a three and a half star by Joe, who gives it a heart, and has this to say about the film: James Belushi's performance is a bigger war crime than anything depicted in this flick. Oh, me? yeah, did not like the Belush. Did I, I say that yeah. the Belush. <laughs> I don't know. Now we need an actor shirt. I the Belu- actors' nicknames. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> so my second review is, is but this is another reason why I love Letterboxd, because you have filmmakers like Sean Baker, who directed The Florida Project, and Tangerine, who, oddly, you see also leaving comments from time to time. And Sean Baker had this to say about Salvador. Rewatched to see if I liked it more than I did 30 years ago. Unfortunately, it still lost me as soon as the plot kicks in, especially the focus on Ambassador Thomas Kelly, played by Michael Murphy. Supposedly, the budget was only $4.5 million. That is incredible. This film would easily cost $60 million today. Twilight Time Blu-ray has Oliver Stone commentary that I'm looking forward to listening to. Thanks, Sean Baker. Thank you, Sean Baker. Well, to follow up on the good and kind Sean Baker, uh, Tess has a one-and-a-half-star review, and I think this gets to something that, that Baker was talking about. Loud, incoherent, and over-the-top macho. The main character is just an unsympathetic jerk, and I even cheer loudly when he gets shot. It's hard to follow the story because it's such a mess, and I can barely figure out who is on which side. No, I would not recommend this wreck. Uh, and then goes on to do the whole thing in Dutch. So, mm. I uh, that I, I absolutely get that uh, that position. Uh, it's it. This film is. It takes a little bit of work. It takes a little bit of work. Thanks, Letterboxd. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. It's the way to go. All right, we're going to play a little game. I'm going to name a series from season 10, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. 10 seasons of this. I should be a pro by now. First up, David Fincher. This was a member bonus. Gone Girl. Aquatic Killers. Mm, Certainly not Tentacles. (laughs) Oh, In the Heart of the Sea. Nice. Here's another member bonus. John le Carre. Ah... Uh, the Russia House. Oh, I love that score so much. Here's a tough one. Soviet science fiction. Ooh, uh, I have no idea. All of them? Not quite. Just Dead Mountaineers Hotel. Awesome. We have covered lots of great movies that started out as books, plays, even comics. Sources like Ivanhoe, Conan the Barbarian, Eight Billion Ways to Die, The Hot Rock, Born on the Fourth of July, American Psycho, The Shawshank Redemption. The Green Mile, The Mist, The Big Heat, and Naked Lunch. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them, so now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. 
I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out, and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. Thank you.